This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. This week, we are joined by a friend of mine, Daniel McAdams. Daniel, as many of you know, probably heads up the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. And Daniel and I both share a background together as former staffers for Congressman Ron Paul in his office in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. So, Daniel, all that said, it's great to talk to you. It's great to be back with you, Jeff. Well, briefly, for, for any of our listeners who are unfamiliar, just give them a quick rundown of what the Ron Paul Institute is and what its mission is. Well, I would say that we do three main things, uh, Jeff. Uh, you know, we're an educational charity, 501c3 charity. Uh, so our three sort of prongs are, you know, we publish every day three or four articles and we try to, you know, they're highly curated. We want to show people the three or four things that you may want to be thinking about that day. Uh, and, and so that's that's the main thing. And we, and we do the daily Ron Paul Liberty Report uh, with Dr. Paul uh, Monday through Thursday with me as the co-host and Friday with Chris Rossini as a co-host. And the other important part of what we do is conferences. Uh, and thankfully, this past year, we've finally been able to get back to doing that. Uh, and we had three big events this year. Uh, we had a we did something on Nixon's closing the gold window in Houston at a brewery. Uh, we had our normal Washington uh, conference, uh, which was our biggest conference ever. And we also had the Ron Paul Scholar Seminar, uh, which is an event. This is our second annual one of those events for upper division undergrads and grad students like a foreign policy boot camp. And we had a great one this time. We had Thomas Massey, uh, Phil Giraldi, uh, uh, Jim Bovard. I mean, the, the lineup was, was terrific, Bumper Hornberger. So it was, um, it was a great thing. And so th- these are the things that we're doing and what we're going to expand in the future. But again, it is a uh, focusing on foreign policy, but increasingly this year, these past two years, Jeff, I would have to say civil liberties. And my own mind has been absolutely focused on civil liberties, probably to the um, to the to the uh, near abandonment of foreign policy in some ways, but I think that goes without saying. Well, I had the opportunity to attend your Washington D.C. conference a month or so back, and it was definitely eclectic. There were a lot of different speakers on a lot of different topics, including the aforementioned Thomas Massey, but also RFK Jr. Uh, talking about health freedom. So that was really fascinating to me, and I think uh, kudos to you. And to Ron Paul, because I think uh, dollar for dollar, the Ron Paul Institute punches well above its weight in terms of influence. And the Liberty Report, of course, is is a daily go-to for a lot of people. But uh, certainly I'm biased in your favor. Now, I want to touch base a little bit about your past. When I met you, you had been living in Europe for several years, I believe, in Hungary specifically. And I'm told, or maybe it's a vicious rumor, that at one point in your early career, you even had some neoconish tendencies. So give us a little bit of the background. Well, I, I don't know that it was neoconish tendencies, really. I mean, uh, I was, you know, when the Cold War ended, I had just finished uh, up at UC Berkeley with a degree in English literature, which is, of course, as we all know, the most useful degree on earth, right? <laughs> so uh, we're in a recession in 88, and I have an English degree. Uh, and I had always wanted to do actually uh, foreign affairs and politics, but uh, was not able to do it. So I decided to go back to grad school and uh, and, and study international relations, which in some ways was a, a dumb move, but in some ways it was a very fortuitous move. Uh, but not necessarily neocon, but um, <clears throat> you know I went over to Europe 
and I watched the, the Clinton administration from the very beginning uh, supporting people, supporting the so-called reform communists. And I, and I was pretty naive back then. I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. And I thought, these guys, they just must not know what's going on. They must not know the good guys and the bad guys. You know, we got to support the good guys, not the guys that have been, you know, uh, exploiting people for, for decades. And, you know, a lot of it's philosophical, Jeff, because there are sort of two ways of looking at, at the communist uh, era. And one of those is that it's an, it's an aberration in history. Uh, it's something that, uh, that came uh, unique in a non-organic, non-evolutionary way. Uh, and so therefore, when you cut it out, if you look at it like the cancer that a lot of us believe it was, if you cut out that cancer, then you have two threads of history that are separated by several decades, in the Soviet Union's case, many decades. So the question is, do you rejoin those threads of history and move on in sort of an evolutionary, social evolutionary manner? Or do you view the communist era as a part of the normal evolution process? And therefore, it wasn't an aberration of history, but just another part of history. And so I had, I had uh, fallen clearly on the side of it being an aberration, of being a cancer. Uh, and so I and a lot of the people, uh, certainly in Hungary that I worked with, uh, people in the Hungarian Democratic Forum, uh, which was the first party to win the elections after communism, uh, they looked at traditions pre-communism and wanted to uh, to to uh, revive a lot of those traditions, of course. But for the U.S. embassy, that was anathema uh, because those were dark days. Those were the days of anti-Semitism, uh, and that uh, which, of course, it wasn't at all. It was a thousand years of Hungarian history. But um, but that's sort of the philosophical breaking point of uh, how you view the sort of historiography of, of you know, 20th century uh, Central and Eastern Europe. So I know that while you were living in Eastern Europe, you had done some work with the British Helsinki Group. So talk about that and why are they controversial? The, the regime change democracy for all types don't seem to like them. No, they don't. And of course, those regime change democracy for all people are now firmly ensconced on our shores. And we can talk about that later. But this is something we saw my gosh, what is it, 30 years ago, um, uh, 25 years ago, we saw this machine uh, taking on a life of its own and certainly eventually coming over to the West. But I was exposed to the British Helsinki group uh, in a pretty simple way. Um, I was at the time writing off and on for a newspaper called the Budapest Sun, which was the largest English language paper in Central and Eastern Europe. I eventually became the editorial page editor of the publication, uh, but very early on, I'd noticed uh, there was a good conservative writer, Jonathan Sunley, uh, who's a brilliant, uh, who's a brilliant um, a British scholar. He studied under Professor Norman Stone, uh, and uh, eventually we became friends. And it turns out that Jonathan uh, was involved with a group that was doing a lot of work over there that was that were skeptics of a lot of the received conventional wisdom. Uh, over there. And a lot of it has to do with the, the last answer I gave, the view of history and uh, the view of whether or not if you or your family were involved in the implementation of communism, if you have a right to remain in the vanguard of the change away from communism. And that's, of course, exactly what they all believe that they had the right to do. We, we will stay on top. That's why they're the ones to a, to a large degree who managed the transition you know, in Hungary, it's called the Rensservaltas, um, the transition 
was managed by the same people who brought communism in. So as it turns out, I had done, um, I, I spent a, a brief period in the State Department in intelligence. And by just pure happenstance, I was handed the Albania account uh, in State Department's intelligence and research because the person who was doing it normally uh, was following Czechoslovakia's breakup very closely and didn't have time for Albania. So it was it was nice that it fell in my lap and I wrote a lot of things for the secretary's daily briefing book just because nobody wanted to do it. Um, so that was known that I had a lot of experience in Albania. And so they said, hey, do you want to go and uh, go to Vienna and testify uh, at the OSCE? And do you want to take a trip uh, to Albania and uh, see this coup that was taking, you know, that was sort of uh, starting up in 1996? And uh, and after that, of course, it was <clears throat> it was off to the races with this group because they were definitely like minded people. So when you ultimately returned to the United States, this was right around 9-11 or thereabouts. Um, how had you first heard of Ron Paul and how did you come to work for him as his foreign policy guy? Well, as I mentioned to a speech I gave to the LP Mises Conference uh, caucus a couple of weeks ago, uh, my my gateway drug was Justin Ramondo. It was through finding Justin, uh, and I'm, again, I said it in my speech, I'm somewhat reluctant to say it now, but um, I was on uh, a website back then. Uh, yeah, kiddies may not remember that there, there weren't really uh, uh, websites as we know them now, but it was called Free Republic. And it was basically a right-wing site, wingnut site, and um, which hated Clinton, and I hated Clinton. I mean, I wasn't necessarily a right-winger, but I hated Clinton for a lot of reasons. Uh, and there was this guy that kept uh, uh, putting his articles up on Free Republic, uh, and you know, to being absolutely pummeled by these right-wing wingnuts, but it never deterred him. And that was Justin Ramondo. And he responded and responded and responded. And so I started reading Justin, and I started realizing, of course, <clears throat> in the late 90s, uh, how right he was about what was happening in the Balkans, because I was almost, I was literally next door. And it was through Justin, thank God, that I discovered Lou Rockwell uh, and Ron Paul and so many of the other people who were saying the same thing. So um, uh, indeed, it was uh, thanks to Justin Ramondo that I started really questioning my idea that we've got to help the good guys because the bad guys are winning. Uh, and I started realizing that we should not be helping any guys. Uh, and that was my big revelation. So could you have imagined, though, this is the late 90s, early 2000s, as you're having this awakening could you at that point have imagined the Ron Paul revolutions of 2008 and 2012? No, not at all. In fact, at the time, it was it was a shock to me because I wasn't that awfully interested in politics. I guess I was just sort of a basic, I was involved in Republicans abroad, and it was mostly a social club because I was trying to find a way to get some connections and make some dough. Um, <clears throat> but um, But, you know, at the time, even what little I knew of Congress... Uh, you know, we, we did have the Gingrich revolution while I was over there. So I, at that time, was foolishly thought, oh, the good guys are going to start doing really good things. Uh, and of course, I was wrong. <laughs> but um, but so the, here's this obscure uh, Texas congressman. Um, he didn't seem like a right winger. He was kind of, I didn't understand it. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't peg him because I didn't understand libertarianism at the time. Um, I remember my father-in-law used to always say that he was libertarian, and I really didn't know what it meant. Uh, except that he thought that, you know, you shouldn't be put in jail for drugs, which I disagreed with him on at the time. <clears throat> so, no, I never could have foreseen it. 
uh, even having worked for him for what six or so years before the revolution took off, um, it was you know we were always fighting rearguard actions. You know we were always you know throwing in uh, you know uh, metaphorical bombs into the machine to try to slow things up and to try to at least make some points. So the idea that all of this would coalesce into you know a worldwide historic movement that you know will be written about that is written about in history books it never would have really occurred to me at the time you know those years you spent as dr paul's representative on the house international relations committee i know within those years henry hyde was the chairman of that committee i i don't recall who else was but what what was ron's impact being on that committee why did they let him sit on that committee <laughs> Well, he was on the committee before I was hired. And I think my experience, you know, I had been writing for Lou Rockwell in anti-war. Uh, and I think that's what helped me. He needed, uh, you know, our good friend Joe Becker, who's now with you guys at Mises. Uh, he, he wanted to move on. He'd been there for, for uh, he thought, enough time. And so they needed someone that could handle uh, Ron's foreign affairs stuff. So, I, you know, I was just dumb luck. I fit the bill, uh, you know, <clears throat> when it came to that. But... It was not easy for him to get on international relations. He had tried before, and he was told that he wasn't sufficiently uh, loyal to a different state, <laughs> uh, which is Israel, to be considered acceptable to be on the committee. Uh, but eventually, he was he was offered a position there, and I think they probably they probably regretted it, particularly as you know we faced the run up to the Iraq War, uh, the years of the Iraq War, uh, you know the Patriot Act, et cetera, et cetera. They probably regretted letting him on the committee. But it did provide him some excellent opportunities over the years to make his case. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, every time it came to his turn, the eyes were rolling. Oh, my God, oh, this is not going to be easy. Here he goes again. Um, but over and over again, you know, he just made such crisp points, such perfect points. He never let anything uh, slip by him. And, you know, as everyone knows, he did it in his calm manner. He wasn't pounding the table. He wasn't acting like a buffoon like so many other members. He just simply assailed them with facts and with analysis. And that's why they hated him the most, especially Tom Lantos, who was the chairman for a brief period of time. What's so interesting about Ron is that he was motivated basically by two things in, in deciding to be to run for Congress, uh, foreign policy and monetary policy, and, and you know this better than me, is that he was able to dovetail those two things. In other words, he understood that everything is economics and that interventionism abroad is, is a cousin of interventionism at home in the economy. Absolutely. And, it's, 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 and this is something that the neocons and most conservatives, people who would call themselves conservatives, never understand. Because if you, if you told them uh, those of us, who, those of them who agree with with us on domestic policy, hey, the government shouldn't be telling you what to do. They shouldn't be telling you what your taxes, uh, you know, should be. Uh, they shouldn't be telling you how to run your business. Those same people believe that you know, six thousand miles away, all of a sudden the government becomes omniscient and omnipotent, and so there's such a huge disconnect. And, and the reason is very, very simple. They never have to live with the consequences of the policies that they promote overseas. They never have to live in a Ukraine uh, that's been destroyed by the Maidan. They never have to go back and live in Libya, which has been a, which has been a nightmare since we quote liberated it. So they never have to face the consequences of the policies that they that they support and promote. So therefore, they continue uh, to promote them, and they will 
probably until the whole thing uh, the whole thing comes down, which who knows may be imminent. Well, it's interesting if you go back and look at the Constitution, there's no distinction made or no language whatsoever about foreign policy and domestic policy. Uh, and yet up until recently, maybe Trump, uh, there used to be a bit of a gentleman's agreement in Congress that uh, politics stops at the water's edge. And I think yeah. that was uh, allowed for a lot of interventionism to go uh, unremarked with bipartisan support. You're right. You're absolutely right, Jeff. And it was a very convenient tool for the interventionists, because after all, those are our boys over there. And anything you say that might put them in danger questions your patriotism. So that was used a lot to solidify support for intervention overseas. There's no question about that. Well, I want to talk about whether there is a Ron Paul doctrine. And it would, of course, have to meld these two things, economics and foreign policy. And I was uh, rereading Mises' Liberalism the other day for a talk I had given somewhere else. And that, that book is just start to finish. I mean, hundred and barely 200 pages, just jam-packed. And so it struck me that Mises' prescription for a liberal society or even a liberal nationalism was very much in keeping with, with what I would say is a, is, a, is a Ron Paul doctrine, which means laissez-faire at home, leaving people be to, to go their own ways uh, with decentralization, even up to and including secession, uh, having free trade, which of course keeps us uh, away from the problems of autarky and needing to do everything domestically. And then finally, a strictly, rigidly non-interventionist foreign policy abroad. So it's sort of four elements to Mises's prescription for a liberal society. And it struck me and sorry for being so wordy here, Daniel, but that those same four elements are a good description of what we might call a Ron Paul doctrine. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And I think that that is. And I think, you know, at its core, a Ron Paul doctrine would be resisting the temptation of authoritarian impulses, you know, because it, they're there, they're everywhere. And the thing about Ron, and I work with him now a lot, a lot more closely than I did on the Hill, as you know, I mean, we, we, did, we, went, we only went in there when we had an issue. Uh, normally, we left him. We left him alone. I work with him daily now, and it's 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 evident in every aspect of his life, including his interpersonal relationships, is resisting the impulse to authoritarianism uh, or to any kind of uh, intervention. And you know, sometimes that's been a little difficult. Sometimes there were some maybe some staffers who needed a little more intervention. <laughs> but Ron would always hope that they would straighten up and fly right. He always hoped that people would do the right thing. Um, but he was always want to uh, to tell people what that right thing was. And I think it's so much encapsulated, you know, almost in a bumper sticker. Well, what should I do? Well, do what you want to do. You know, what should I do to promote liberty? Well, do what you want to do. Do what you're good at. And I think that that is uh, at its core. And I don't know if it's a kind of uh, a Protestant work ethic uh, or if it's the way he was raised in, uh, in, in circumstances where hard work paid off. Uh, to a successful career, to a successful life, uh, what one that started, uh, you know, in very, um, in very difficult circumstances. You know, if you know about about his past and about how uh, his ancestors came over from Germany with literally nothing in their pockets, and hard work provided them the American dream. I think that's really kind of the who Ron Paul is because he he understands uh, what's what that's like. Yeah, and I mentioned this one time at an event we held at. Ron's home, 
where I said, I wish some of his critics would deliver 1,000 babies before they began criticizing him because he's delivered 4,000. Yeah. But or how about know, riding around in a horse-drawn carriage delivering milk at you know seven years old, right? Yes. Let's, why don't you try that? <laughs> yes, for for his father's dairy, which people who have read his uh, biography will know about. Yeah. So, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the schisms, even amongst libertarians. You know, Ron has always been a bit of a lightning rod, and there's always been a, a split between what we might call DC libertarians and Ron Paul libertarians in the Mises Institute. And if we're going to apply a tougher appellation to them, we might call them regime libertarians. In other words, there have always been people in those circles who say, oh, you know, Ron Paul ends up making apologies for foreign dictators because his non-interventionism is blind. And so over the years, I know you've also been on the receiving end of some of these criticisms. So uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, it's it's, it's, uh, the issue of staying out of other people's business at home and abroad. And I talked about this a little bit at the speech I gave uh, earlier this month. Uh, you know, there are these, there's sort of a Trotskyist fas- faction of libertarians who believe that, that uh, a libertarian government overseas uh, imposed by force in this permanent revolution uh, is the only way we can have freedom in the world. And there are these sort of uh, liberal messianic interventionists who do want to have libertarianism here first, but who do also ultimately want to export uh, that overseas. And then there are what I call the live and let live libertarians, which understand that people in a country, for example, Iran, may want to live under a theocracy. And it's just none of our damn business if they do. And I suggest that as, an, as a sort of a, a pressure release system that, that perhaps you, know, you might let some more immigrate who don't want to live in that, but otherwise people should be free to live uh, as they wish, or even in Yugoslavia, if they want to have, a, or in, uh, in uh, sorry, in Venezuela, if they want to have a socialist system. Now, eventually, there may be, there are always evolutionary changes, of course. Uh, and unfortunately, our evolutionary changes are not going in the right direction. Uh, but that, you know, when you subject that to external pr- pressure, uh, you, you move from evolutionary changes to a revolutionary change, which is there's just no example in history where us being the vanguard of democratic revolutionary change overseas has ever produced positive results. You know, and all of this comes from, from you know, understanding the Ron Paul doctrine, as you say, and how Ron Paul views the world. Uh, and he's, he's not, uh, he, anyone who follows him knows that he's not bashful about criticizing Venezuela's economic policy. Uh, but it's just he doesn't, he doesn't take it to the next step of calling for us to liberate the people there. Well, you know, Justin Romando received a lot of grief too oh, yeah. over the years for being strict about this rather than saying it's our job to shape the world or, or impose our will on the world. What strikes me, Daniel, is there's so much economic ignorance in the neoconservative worldview. In other words, we don't have the money. We don't have the dough. Almost all wars and police actions and all nation building, it's all debt financed. And that if people really understood economics, they would know that a a grandiose foreign policy worldview like a Bill Crystal is just flat incompatible with so-called limited government, which is supposed to be a conservative shibboleth. It's absolutely true. And, I, and, and the more I understand how things work, the more I, I also understand that it's not necessarily ideological. You know, people like Bill Crystal live very good lives because they do the bidding of the defense contractors in the military industrial complex. 
And we're seeing we're seeing so much of that now. We're looking at uh, now the medical industrial complex, the pharma industrial complex. These are special interests that literally have that literally have Congress uh, in a chokehold, and they've 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 produced probably the Cold War itself. I think if we want to be revisionist, but certainly the post Cold War era and the maintenance and expansion of the U.S. empire was has all been driven by the by the weapons manufacturers. Uh, you know, by um, uh, uh, so so it's it's yeah, partially ideological, but that ideology is awfully convenient when it leads you to live a better life than normally you would live as a humble scribbler like like uh, Crystal would have been. Yeah, it's interesting. Here's an analogy for you. There's obviously crossover. Someone like a Mary Cheney agrees with uh, Joe Biden on foreign policy. And there's this kind of, you know, Mitt Romney types will agree with a Terry McAuliffe, who might be the next uh, governor in Virginia. God help us. But we've also uh, established some interesting and strange bedfellows on left and right from our perspective. In other words, there's voices out there like Dennis Kucinich and Jimmy Dore and Caitlin Johnstone down in Australia, uh, aligning with people like you and the aforementioned Ramondo and Ron Paul. So I do think there's an opportunity there. I do think that these for, these endless foreign wars are not popular outside the Beltway. I do. And, and I'm, I'm actually, this is one of the few areas I have to admit that I'm slightly optimistic still. Most of the things, unlike, unlike Ron, I've I've developed this over this sort of overwhelming dark uh, uh, pessimism, but but the I think if anything, certainly the foreign policy, but also this entire year and a half or two years of COVID tyranny uh, has exposed a lot of the people that I was worried might come down on the other side um, because they were progressives um, has really reassured me. And people like Glenn Greenwald, slightly a latecomer. Uh, to the whole thing, but Matt Taibbi, uh, as you say, Jimmy Dore, uh, who's who's so terrific on this issue, um, some of the people that that I've known on foreign policy, Vanessa Bealey and her group, uh, Whitney Webb, uh, these are great writers, and they've all come down as anti-authoritarians, where most of their or a lot of their allies or once allies on the left have firmly come down in the camp of the CIA of the Patriot Act. Of don't question, you know, you're you are in a resistance, but don't you dare resist the authorities, uh, you know, uh, insurrection, uh, you know. So um, these, thankfully, these ties, these cross uh, aisle, as you would say, ties, have not only managed to survive the COVID tyranny, but I think they've been um, fertilized by it. So there is a little bit of optimism uh, for me, at least in this point. Yeah, and I think the COVID regime has to be viewed uh, like the uh, interventionist regime overseas. I mean, these are part and parcel of the same beast. Uh, you know, one thing you've mentioned before in talks is the Rockwell rule, named after yeah. Lou Rockwell. So we had mentioned regime libertarians earlier who want you to browbeat every tin pot dictator uh, and tell, you know, you know, in other words, they want you to be against actual military intervention and maybe even against economic intervention in the form of sanctions, but they want you to join the chorus of browbeaters to sort of show your patriotism. So what's the Rockwell rule and what can we learn from it? It's very simply, never, ever, ever, in any regime that the CIA wants to overthrow, never, ever repeat their talking points. Never criticize any regime that the CIA wants to overthrow, full stop. 
and that's 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 that is the Rockwell rule, the Rockwell doctrine, uh, and it it deprives the interventionists of the ability to say, see, even the libertarians agree that Gaddafi is passing out Viagra, or <laughs> that Saddam is eating babies, you know, and they can say, oh yeah, the libertarians, yeah, they don't want to invade, whatever. But see, even they agree, even they agree. So deprive them of that ability. And Caitlin Johnstone uh, is also has a good way of saying it. Don't be a CIA mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is very, very important. Uh, and, and it's so funny because you do see these things at exactly the right moment that the CIA and that the regime change machine wants you to say it. When they're ramping up the heat on Iran, all of a sudden you'll have some young libertarian gal come out and say, Iran is a horrible a despotism. They, they're socialist in their economy uh, and this sort of thing. It always comes at the exact right moment. And so if you're a libertarian and you participate in this, you're a dupe or worse. Yeah, it strikes me there's a tremendous amount of hubris in the West today that the whole world has to share our principles and our form of governance, which would basically be, I suppose, social democracy with a healthy, robust safety net, and that we have to have a, you know, international governance in the form of the United Nations or the World Bank or whatever it might be. And from my perspective, Daniel, this is just the 21st century's version of imperialism and colonialism. It's just ideological colonialism. Yeah, and, and worse, because we can kill a lot more people a lot quicker. I mean, <laughs> the people that jump on the bandwagon, oh, we've got to do this, we've got to overthrow X. You were living in a country whose foreign policy and, and military leadership are responsible for the deaths of millions. You know, you're, you have a president who just droned a family and then lied about it, started wars forever, who's now holding, you know, nearly 100 people in a gulag in D.C. because they happened to set foot in the white in the uh, Capitol building on January 6th. You know, this is one of the most repressive regimes in the world. And if you doubt that, step out of line. Uh, yet, nevertheless, if there's a bad guy overseas, we got to jump in and join the chorus and join the two minutes of hate against him to keep this evil regime up and running, you know, to keep the dollars flowing uh, to the overt and covert uh, regime change mechanism here at home. So the thing is, just don't buy into it. Bite your tongue. Okay, the guy's a jerk overseas. Probably true, but we got a hell of a lot bigger of jerks running the State Department, running the military, running the military-industrial complex uh, right here at home. Well, I'd like to get your take on some current issues in uh, foreign affairs. Let's start with China You know, I'm, uh, and Taiwan. I'm interested in Biden's saber rattling and talking to the Japanese about potential joint naval exercises. I wonder offhand, there's an awful lot of Chinese Americans. I wonder what they would think of Biden if he joined forces with the Japanese to uh, rattle sabers against uh, China. That's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting point. And it's one that I, it's a variable I don't think has been considered much. Um, I, from my experience, now I may be wrong, but from my experience, I think the Chinese Americans in the U.S. tend to be rather apolitical. Um, they're not as involved in politics as other immigrant groups, at least at this point they have not. Uh, I mean, again, this is a sweeping generalism, but they tend to keep their heads down and become very successful in business and academia. Uh, but there might be some triggers uh, for that. You know, you have a lot of you have a lot of Chinese in the U.S. and they have ties to their homeland, they retain those ties. So I think you could you could see some pushback 
I don't think it would be, it, it would, I, I think it would be something that would be very new, uh, but it, it might be, it might be something that, that does eventually come about. But given our recent uh, problems in Afghanistan, for example, I mean, is the United States military equipped at, at all to take on China? And there's an article that I, it's escaping me right now, but I, it's a good article I started and of course didn't finish like a lot of the times. But it's talking, it's looking at numbers and a lot of Americans on the right are, are falling out of love with the military. And that's a very good thing. Uh, they're, they're stopping this military worship and it's because of the wokeness that's gone on in there. Um, but, you know, that is a good question. Are we really going to provoke a war with China when we can't beat a bunch of barefooted people? Uh, you know, for after 20 years of war. Well, I think that's all by design, too. You know, they didn't want the Afghanistan uh, war to end because it's a gravy train. Uh, whereas I think a war with China would be pretty quick and decisive. Um, you know, so are they equipped? No, but they're not. They weren't equipped for Iraq. They weren't equipped for Afghanistan. They've not been equipped for for any war, frankly. Uh, you even could go back to World War One and two. Right? I mean, we kind of came in at the end of World War One when things were pretty settled. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's the whole thing is, is is a complete scam, Jeff. It's a whole it's a it's a huge ripoff. It's a huge psyop against the American people. But even amongst Mises Institute readers and fans and certainly amongst broader libertarian audiences, there are people who say China is a real threat to the United States. China is biding its time and hoping that we have an economic fall here and that libertarians like those at the Mises Institute who talk about secession would simply open the door for a weakened America or a weakened, uh, broken up America to uh, l let the Chinese lion in. <laughs> it's hilarious. What the hell would they do? Right. All right. We got California. This is awesome. I mean, it's so funny. You know, I, I had lunch when I was back in D.C. with my good friend, Colonel McGregor. Uh, and he said, you know, this our, our military is still fighting the idea of a territorial warfare. The rest of the world has given up on this idea. You know, you don't go and fight and take over. I mean, we're right now we've, we've taken over 30 percent of Syria. What the hell are we doing there? Nobody knows. We're the only country in the world that goes around looking to put in bases and, 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 and get territory overseas. What does it give us? I mean, it seems to me the last thing that Chinese would ever want would be to, quote, own most of the U.S., you know, first of all, it's a basket case. They've got their own basket case over there because of their, you know, the economic problems they have. Why, why would they want to inherit something worse? And why would they want to, uh, you know, the, um, the, the distortions in our economy that that would result in would be we, we wouldn't buy their stuff anymore. So it would be a disaster. Uh, you know, the, the real Chinese threat is that the Chinese do uh, capitalism better than we do. We go overseas and we th overthrow governments. We take over media. We push people around. We push gay rights. Uh, the Chinese go over and make business deals uh, in foreign countries and they get the stuff they want. You know, they get the rare earths. They get whatever, whatever they need. They build factories, uh, you know. And that's, that's the real reason that the Chinese will certainly, you know, outpace us, I think, in the future. But instead of addressing that aspect and re returning to a non-interventionist foreign policy at home and abroad, uh, you know, uh, domestic policy and foreign policy, uh, we, we actually are doing the things that make it more likely that they will overtake us in the one area that they're outperforming us. So scratch your heads on that one, really. Talk about Turkey and Erdogan. Just 10 or 15 years ago, he was the darling in the West and Turkey was going to join the Eurozone. Now he's a devil. Uh, he is. He is a devil now. Um, 
because he's pretty he's pretty wily. You know, he knows how to do business with Putin. Uh, he's not he's not uh, he's not chewing on the sound bites that that, that NATO wants to give him. Uh, he 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 you know he's purchased uh, the uh, the S four hundreds now, and that makes him unqualified to participate in the F thirty five project. Although we're still holding, I think a billion of his dollars. Um, and I think we're dangling some F-16s in front of him. Probably best to take the F-16s over the 35s, actually. Um, but, you know, his support, he's a populist. His support comes from the countryside. It comes from the religious countryside. I'm not particularly a huge fan of his, but I did find it interesting, and I find it difficult to um, avoid cheering from him when he told those uh, 10 uh, Western ambassadors, including the U.S. last week, hey, you signed a letter dealing with something that we're dealing with in our internal judicial system, uh, you're persona non grata, get out of the country. And it wasn't until these 11 countries back down, 10 countries back down, uh, that he said, okay, you know, you guys can stay. But he, he's not having it. You know, and I, and, I, and I still, I mean, it's hard for me to believe, you know, I mean, Russia got it, Putin got it. But a country like Belarus has been on the receiving end of U.S. regime chains efforts for so long, still allows some Western NGOs in the country. And that just seems stupid to me. And I think Erdogan has woken up to that. He's woken up to what's happening. Uh, and regardless of how you feel about his policies uh, or his or his authoritarianism, uh, you know, if you don't like the U.S. empire because it hurts us and hurts people overseas, you kind of have to be have a positive view of that. How about Iran? Are they actually developing nuclear energy or nuclear weapons or neither? Well, they've been about 20 minutes away from a nuclear bomb for the past 30 years. So either they're taking a long coffee break or it's, you know, once again, um, uh, Israel having a conniption fit, as they always do, and the U.S. following suit. Um, again, it's the same people driving it, the military industrial complex. Um, the Israelis, because they have such moral hazard, because we, we subsidize their military so much, they don't have an incentive to make peace with their neighbors because they believe uh, that the U.S. has their back no matter what they do. And this is not a healthy policy for Israel in any sense of the word, and it's certainly not a healthy policy for us. The best policy would be for us to disengage. And Massey, you know, Thomas Massey got in big trouble because he voted against a billion dollars for their Iron Dome. You know, they, they basically they start bombing their neighbors and piss them off, and then their neighbors shoot back and they put up their Iron Dome. And oh my gosh, we've you know we've expended all our domes. Give us some more, um, but you know we subsidized a policy in Israel that's very dangerous to Israel. And if we didn't do that, they would have to find a way to deal with their neighbors uh, and 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 find peace. And they probably would because there are a lot of things they have in common. Uh, believe it or not, or certainly as we know, Iran has the largest Jewish community outside of Israel uh, in 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 uh, in the world. I think aside from aside from the U.S. But um, so, you know, the Iran policy is a disaster under under Trump, disaster under Biden, because I don't know what the Biden foreign policy is, to be quite honest with you. But um, but certainly the Biden administration is trying to have it both ways. They, they, they promise to go back to the joint comprehensive agreement, the JCPOA, but they can't do it because they're having a lot of pressure uh, from the pro-Israel faction that you have to get a, you have to get additional concessions. And, and Iran is saying. What are you talking about? We already went through this whole thing. We made an agreement. Why would we give up more than what we initially signed on to? And you know, the the whole irony of it, the humor of it, is that we're pushing Iran more firmly into the camp of, of Russia and China. And they say, hey, 
if you want to deal with us, we're going to go ahead and sell some oil to China. And China says, okay, we'll take it. Sounds good. So we're, we're actually the authors of our own demise with our stupid foreign policy. Finally, give us your take on Russia and Putin. Ah, uh, well, it was an interesting uh, talk that he gave to the Valdai discussion group this past couple, uh, past week. I think it was um, where he talked about the um, the wokeism in the U.S. and he talked about how we seem to be devouring ourselves and how he remembers uh, in their own history what happened when the Soviets came uh, and tried to suppress speech and tried to suppress. Uh, normal life as the wokists uh, in America are doing and how it's very well recognized in Russia uh, what's happening in the U.S. And basically essentially saying that Russia is, is probably the last conservative, uh, for better or worse, whatever the word means, conservative country on earth. So it's, um, and I know that makes a lot of anti-wokists feel like Russia is the, um, is the answer, is the, is the paradise uh, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's the case. And I think one of the things we've seen from COVID is that there's still a lot of authoritarian impulses there um, that, that we might not necessarily like. But anyone interested in, there, there's, um, I forget who wrote the excerpts, but there are plenty of excerpts from that speech. I think it was a three-hour speech. Imagine Joe Biden giving a, a very detailed three-hour talk on anything. Um, uh, uh, but uh, it's very, very, very interesting. And I, I really highly recommend that the listeners take a look at what he had to say. Well, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this or not, but in 1959, that's a long time ago now, Murray Rothbard was, wrote a letter to Ken Templeton, who was one of the people at the Volcker Fund. The Volcker Fund was supporting Rothbard's uh, writings in the 50s, especially of Man, Economy, and State. And I'm quoting Rothbard. He said, I've decided that the, the war peace question is key to this whole libertarian business. What a great quote. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is the key quote. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank all of you for your time today. I want to thank Daniel McAdams for joining us and for everything he does at the Ron Paul Institute. And I want to wish everybody a great weekend. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.